0: Absolutely, the more convinced I am that there is no issue more fundamental or more foundational to your theology and thus to your Christian life than your view of the Scriptures. This is what I wrote about in the last issue of our church newsletter, Is the Bible Enough? How do you view Scripture? Is it for you the only authoritative, all-sufficient bread of life, or is it supplemented by something else? There is no more foundational, no more fundamental, no more basic issue than your view and your handling of the Word of God. Your view of the Word of God will determine your view of God, because a high view of Scripture means that you have a high view of God. And a high view of God means that you have a high view of every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And if you have a low view of Scripture, it is indicative of a very low view of God. It will affect how you worship. Only a view of God and His Word, I should put it this way, only a view of God's Word that says it is pure, it is holy, it is wonderful, it is the bread of life, only a view of God's Word that it was expressed by Job when he said, I have desired the words of His mouth more than my necessary food. Only that kind of a perspective on the Word of God is worthy of the God who spoke it. Some people view Scripture as a smorgasbord. You can come to it and you can sort of pick and choose those pieces of the Word of God that you like that are... Fitting for your appetite, you want a God who's love and mercy and forgiveness, well then you just come to scripture and you pick out those passages that speak of love and mercy and forgiveness and you can leave the rest. Like a smorgasbord. And so on their plate, they're left with a God that is of their own making. He fits their own decisions and their own desires and their own wants of what they want God to be like. They have, some people have no room for a God who would create hell as well as a heaven. They have no room for a God who is sovereign over creation, sovereign over salvation, sovereign over our sanctification. They do not want to hear about a God who would choose some for salvation and pass over others. They do not want a God who, whose wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They don't want that kind of a God. So they treat Scripture like a smorgasbord that they can go to, take what they appetize for, and leave the rest. Some people treat Scripture like a lump of clay. And they put it on their spinning wheel and they apply pressure here and they apply pressure there and they put their fingers in here and they move this out and they twist it and shape it into something that bears no resemblance to what it started with but is strikingly similar to what they wanted it to say in the beginning. They twist it, they distort it, they turn it, they move it, they press it, they push it back and forth until they get what they want. That's how some people take treat Scripture. Other people treat Scripture like it's just another edition of Chicken Soup for the Soul. A collection of anecdotes and proverbs and quaint little stories that are designed to make me feel better and to sort of heal my emotional wounds and and soothe my soul. But since God's Word is God's Word, then all of those views of Scripture are inadequate at best and blasphemous at worst. Scripture is the means of my salvation. It is the seed that the Spirit of God plants in my heart to bring me to faith in Christ. It is the tool that the Spirit of God uses to sanctify me. It gives light to the eyes. It restores the soul. It is my counselor. It is my bread of life. It is living water. It is all of those things, the Word written and the Word incarnate. It is not a smorgasbord that I can take what I want and leave what I don't like. It's not a lump of clay that I can twist and mold to my own making. And Scripture is not just a, simply a collection of nice, quaint stories that are designed to make me feel good. Instead, Scripture is the pure, unadulterated, untainted, powerful, living, dynamic, pure and holy Word of a living God. And only that view of Scripture is worthy of the God who gave Scripture. Now, I believe that, and I believe that the apostles believed that, and I believe that the New Testament church believed that. And Dr. Luke, in the book of Acts, shows us how the growth of the early church was the growth of the Word of God. And he uses the term, the Word, or the preaching of the Word, or the growth of the Word, or the Word of the Lord, or the Word of God, as synonymous with the faith, the gospel, and the growth of the church in the book of Acts. I want to just give you sort of a, a crash course review of the book of Acts, and I want you to listen to the pattern. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, the Apostle Peter, after he was preaching his sermon, Luke says, so then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day added about 3,000 souls. In Acts chapter 4, after they had been threatened to speak no longer in the name of Jesus, the apostles got out of prison, and this is what they prayed, now Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. While you extend your hand to heal, and signs and wonders take place through your name of your holy servant Jesus, and when they had prayed, the place where they were gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak the Word of God with boldness. In Acts chapter 6, verse 2, the church grew to the point, the Word grew to the point where the Apostle said, it is not right for us to neglect the Word of God in order to serve tables. And so in Acts chapter 6 they appointed men who were able to oversee that and to do that the result being Acts chapter 6 verse 7 the word of God kept on spreading. Acts chapter 8 those who were scattered in connection with the persecution of Saul of Tarsus it says they went about preaching the word. Acts chapter 8:14 the Samaritans received the word. Acts chapter 8 verse 25 the apostles came down and spoke to them the word of the Lord. Acts chapter 11 when Cornelius got saved it says he received the word. Acts chapter 12 at the or 11, the apostles came down and began speaking the word. And in Acts chapter 12, the word of the Lord continued to grow and be multiplied. Do you see the pattern? What's it about? It's the word. The ministry of the church is the ministry of the word. The ministry of preaching is the ministry of the word. The ministry of teaching is the ministry of the word. Friends, this is what you and I are about. That's it. We are a people of this book. And this book alone. And to minister is to minister this book and this truth. To preach or to teach or to evangelize or to defend the faith or to grow the church or to disciple is in essence to minister the Word of God. That's the way the early church did it. When Luke talks about the spread of the Word, he means the spread of the church. When he talks about the spread of the Word, he means the spread of the gospel. The influence of the apostles when he talks about the ministry of the church, it was always in terms of the preaching, the proclamation, the teaching, and the advancement of the Word. To defend the Word is to defend the faith. To grow the Word is to grow the church. To spread the Word is to spread the Gospel. It's all about the Word. Now we would expect that of the apostles and those who hung out with Jesus, but we might expect the Apostle Paul to deviate from that a little bit. He was sort of a different Apostle. We might say, well, he got saved in a a different way. It was Is an Apostle of his own right? Maybe he did something different. No. It was the same with the Apostle Paul. Acts 13, verse 5, listen to how Luke describes Paul's ministry. When they reached Salmos, they began to proclaim the word of the Lord. Acts chapter 13, Sergius Paulus sent for Paul. Why? Because he wanted to hear the word of the Lord. Acts chapter 13, verse 44, when they went into Pisidian Antioch, it says the next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear what? The word of the Lord. Acts chapter 13, verse 48, when they believed, it says the Gentiles heard this and they began rejoicing and glorifying the Word of the Lord. The result being in chapter 13, verse 49, that the Word of the Lord was spread throughout the whole region. Acts chapter 14, verse 3, Therefore Paul and Barnabas spent a long time speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord, who was testifying to the Word of His grace. Do you see the pattern? Over and over again, what is it? The Word of the Lord. The ministry of the apostles, the ministry of the church, is the Word of the Lord. Acts chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas went back to Antioch where they along with others were preaching and teaching the Word of the Lord. And when Paul wanted to go back on a second trip, what did he say? Let's go back and visit the believers in the cities where we proclaimed what? The Word of the Lord. Acts chapter 16, verse 6, They passed through the Phrygian and Galatian regions, having been forbidden by the Spirit to speak the Word. In Acts chapter 16, the Philippian jailer was saved. Because Paul and Silas spoke the word of God to him along with all who were in his house. What does Luke emphasize? The word of God. Friends, there's no more fundamental issue in all of your life, in all of your ministry, in anything that you do, than your view of the scriptures In Acts chapter 17, when Paul came into Thessalonica, he took the Word and he opened it up to the Old Testament and he began reasoning with the Jews in the synagogue there, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again and that this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you, Paul says, is the Christ. Never deviated from the Word. And they ran Him out of the town. And we see the emphasis on the Word of God in Acts chapter 17, the church in Berea. And I want you to turn to that passage. Acts chapter 17 we're going to be looking at verse 10 through 15 and Luke is emphasizing to us their response to and their attitude toward and their view of and how they handled the word of God. That's the central issue in Berea. Acts chapter 17 beginning at verse 10. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now These were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Therefore many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea also, they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there, Now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they left. Paul went into Thessalonica and proclaimed the word. Some jealous Jews stirred up the crowds. They brought Jason in. They tried to beat him, but that didn't work, so they took a pledge from him. And because of that pledge, you remember that the Apostle Paul had to leave Thessalonica, which he did, verse 10 says, under cover of darkness. Why did he leave under cover of darkness? Because if he had done it in broad daylight and people saw the Apostle Paul, they would have started another riot, and that would have been it for Jason's pledge, his financial money that he put up to ensure the civil peace. And so he left under cover of darkness to avoid a riot, probably to avoid a threat on his life as well. There's obviously a danger hanging over the Apostle Paul. And so he leaves at night and he goes to Berea. Now Berea's 55-mile journey from, from Thessalonica to Berea, 55 miles. Berea is a small town. Cicero describes it as sort of off the beaten path. Berea is way different than Thessalonica. Thessalonica is busy. It's active. It's growing. It's an administrative capital for the Roman Empire, the capital of Macedonia. Berea is completely different. Berea is kind of more backwoods, more rural, more laid back. In Berea, they had little bumper stickers on their chariots that said, slow down, you're in Berea now. That was the attitude of these people. A whole different mentality than what you get in Thessalonica evidenced by their reception to the Word of God. And their reception to the Word of God was so unique that it set them out. It set them apart from every Jewish group Paul had spoken of or spoken to to that point. And it sets them apart from every group of Jews that he speaks to after this point. In the middle of his ministry is this little group of Jews in Berea who would probably be looked over completely in the Acts narrative If it weren't for the fact that they received the gospel in such a different fashion than the Jews in Philippi, than the Jews in Thessalonica, than the Jews in Athens, and the Jews everywhere else that Paul went. So unique that we've coined the term. We've actually turned their name or their city into a modern day term, haven't we? We talk about being a Berean. You ought to be a Berean Christian. When we say that, we mean somebody who is a student of the word, who has a high view of scripture, and goes to the Scriptures to see if the things you're being taught and the things that you are reading are true or not. That's what it means to be a Berean. Now, we don't talk about being a Philippian Christian. You ought to be a Philippian. Or you ought to be a Thessalonian. Those things mean nothing to us. But when I say you need to be a Berean, what does that mean? You need to be a student. You need to be diligent. You need to be careful. You need to be discerning. You need to have a high view of the Word of God and see it as the touchstone of all truth. What made them so unique? Well, let's look at their attitude, beginning in verse ten. It says that Paul, when he got to Berea, went into the synagogue of the Jews, just like he tried to do in Philippi, but he had to go out to the river to find Jews who were meeting for prayer, just like he did in Thessalonica. It was his custom, and he's going to do the same thing in all of the other cities that he that he visits. He went into the synagogue of the Jews and he was doing the same thing there that he was doing in Thessalonica. Reasoning with them from the Scriptures. But look at verse 11. These were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. More noble-minded. Some translations say fair-minded. The word that he uses is the word for nobility. It's almost as if... Well, Matthew Henry puts it this way. They were better bred. A better group of people entirely. These people were more noble-minded, fair-minded toward the Word of God. Now I want you to keep in mind that Luke is not comparing Christians with Christians, okay? It's interesting to me that we use the term Berean to say you ought to be a Berean Christian, but these people had these qualities before they ever became believers. They examined the Scriptures daily before they ever became believers. That's what made them believers. So Luke is not comparing the Christians in Thessalonica with the Christians in Berea. He is comparing the Jews in the synagogue in Thessalonica with the Jews in the synagogue in Berea. And he is saying the Jews in the synagogue in Berea, they were were markedly different than those in Thessalonica. What about them? They were more noble-minded. What made them noble-minded? Look at the text. Luke says, They were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness. They were receptive. See friends, they didn't have this aversion to the truth that was marked to the Jews in Thessalonica and for that matter the Jews in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra and Derby, They didn't have this aversion to the truth that marked almost every other Jewish group that Paul talked to. They were receptive. They were open to the truth. And that's a quality and a characteristic that set them apart from everybody else. When Paul came there, they didn't immediately say, we've never been taught this before, so we're going to reject it. We don't want anything to do with you and your strange teaching. They were noble-minded because when it came to the truth, they were open to it. They wanted to hear more. In fact, Luke says, they received it with eagerness. You can picture them sitting on the edges of their seats, listening to Paul, eager to hear. Will you come back next Sunday and tell us more about this? We want to know. They were open. They were receptive. They didn't oppose Him. And, And i got to wonder if after two or three weeks in that synagogue, Paul and Silas and Timothy left there saying, what is with these people? We have never received an invitation like this. We have never received a reception like this. They were eager. They were hungry for the Word of God. And they were receptive. Friends, you and I have to be reminded to be receptive as Christians to the truth, don't we? That's why James says in James 1.21, laying aside all wickedness and all that other garbage, you should humbly receive the Word implanted. Be receptive. And James goes on to explain what that means. Be doers of the Word. Because the time will come, Paul said, when men will not endure sound doctrine, they won't put up with it. They'll turn their ears away from the truth and they will find teachers who will tell them what they want to hear. They will find teachers who treat the Word of God like a smorgasbord to take what you want and give it out to the people and not say anything about all the bad things in Scripture that might offend us. We need to be reminded to be receptive to the truth. When it comes to the things of the Spirit, When it comes to the Word of God, you and I should have open hearts to receive it. But not only were they receptive, but look what Luke says. They not only received the Word with eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Not only were they receptive, they were diligent. You see, friends, we're not talking about a gullibility. We're not talking about an unquestioning, uncritical acceptance of whatever some teacher or some prophet or some author says. There's nothing noble in being gullible. And the Christian landscape is littered with churches and Christians who simply jump on to whatever latest theological fad or bandwagon comes driving by. That's not what Luke is saying. There's nothing noble in jumping onto to the latest teaching or the latest new truth. We're not talking about gullibility. We're talking about receptivity to the truth. Well, how do I determine if something is true? I have to be diligent. They examined what? Paul's philosophy? No. They examined the Scriptures daily to see if these things were true. Friends, you can imagine the scene inside of the synagogue. Every time the Apostle Paul quoted a passage and said, here's the fulfillment of it. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What passage did you say that was? Open it up. Read it in its context. And ask themselves, is he being fair with the Word of God? Is this what that passage teaches in its context? Is that what the Holy Spirit intended when he wrote that? They examined the Scriptures, how often? Once? Daily. Every time Paul opened his mouth. They took his words and they put it up against Scripture and they said, we're going to analyze the Word to see if what you're saying is true or not. The Word examined is a judicial word and it referred to in that time the the examination into a body of evidence in a judicial form, in a court form. And it implied the the examination of evidence without any bias, without any agenda, a fair, even-handed, open-minded evaluation of facts. That's what it's referring to. These Jews did not come to the Scriptures with their own agenda. They did not come with some preconceived bias. They came with the attitude that said, we will take what you say and hold it up against the Word, and if it's true, we'll accept it. If not, we'll reject it. Just open, honest, with integrity, evaluation of your words. No preconceived notions, no traditions, no cultural biases. Just an open-handed, fair evaluation of the text. Do you think Paul liked that? I think Paul loved it. That's why Luke says they're more noble. They examined the Scriptures daily to see if these things were true. While we were in um, Canada this last week, we went out to my favorite restaurant in Swift Current, the city that Deidre grew up next to. It's Wong's. It's a Chinese restaurant. And you go there for lunch because they have this smorgasbord that they put out and, and it's uh, all you can glutton yourself with for 10 bucks or whatever it is. And we always go there for lunch. And we sat down and we hadn't even been there three or four minutes and this couple walked in that Deidre's folks knew. And so they invited them to sit down and have lunch with us. So they sat down and joined our table. And I was in the midst of my utopia of Chinese smorgasbord, eating away and not paying attention to anything that was going on around me. And the lady who had joined our group said to Deidre that she was thinking about reading the Da Vinci Code because she wanted to understand Scripture better. And so Deidre said to her, you need to ask Jim about that. (laughs) And all I heard was my name. What? And then she told me what was going on. That was the end of my lunch, because I switched from eating mode into teaching mode, and those are two totally different modes, (laughs) because you use your mouth for two totally different things. And so for the next 45 minutes, while Deidre and everybody else enjoyed their meal, I spent explaining to her what the Da Vinci Code was and why it is an error, and I basically said "It's, it's fiction, you shouldn't read it, it's not even good historical fiction, and I've never read it, but from what I understand, it's not even well written. So find some other, it's not even based on the Bible. I said, if you want to understand the Bible, go to the Bible, don't read the Da Vinci Code, because you're not going to understand it, because the premise of the book is that you can't take anything in the Bible seriously. It's all lies, it's all errors, it's all myths. And then she asked, well, what about all these codes that you decode in order to find out current events? You know, every so many spaces in the Bible, there's this letter, and you put them all together, and they spell out some message. And I said, look, all of this stuff, the codes and the, every so many letters, it's all a bunch of mystic, Gnostic, false teaching that makes shipwreck out of people's faith. I said, the Word of God is clear enough. And God is not in the business of encoding His messages so that we might take the time and the energy to try and decipher what He's written. God holds us accountable for what He's revealed. And what He holds us accountable for, He reveals clearly. So that He can hold us accountable for obeying it. So I said, get away from all the codes and if you just... Go to Scripture and read the Scripture. It will keep you busy applying and obeying and studying for the rest of your life. You don't have to worry about any codes. Just what God has said, He has said clearly. And to think, listen, this is just on an aside, to think that God would reveal something in His Word and keep it hidden for 2,000 years from His people so that we could understand it in our modern day. Is Gnosticism... And it is arrogance that to me just boggles the mind. What he said, he said clearly. She said at the end of the conversation, that's about 15 minutes or 20 minutes that I just summed up in 45 seconds, she said, you know, there's so much floating around out there that people teach and they say this and they say that and I'm just so confused and I just don't know what to believe sometimes. Now, If she's a believer, I don't know if she is, but if she's a believer, I didn't have a chance to get into that, She's definitely a young or new believer. And I said, I'll tell you how you can tell truth from error every single time. How? I said, go to the Word. I was studying this passage that that morning. I said, you go to the Word and you test everything by Scripture. And if it doesn't measure up, you reject it. If it measures up to Scripture, then you can trust it being true. You never go wrong if you go to the Scriptures. That's what I shared with you. you see, noble, or is that noble? Uh, or is that somehow profound? It's not profound. It's just basic, elemental stuff. Every Christian ought to be a Berean in the sense that we are open to the truth. We don't reject it because our traditions or our culture or we've never been taught that before. We accept it as true if it measures up to Scripture. That is why I say that it is your view of Scripture that is the most fundamental and foundational element of all of your belief. What's your view of the Word of God? Measure it, and if it measures up, accept it. If it doesn't, then you reject it. This is what the Bereans did. This is what made them more noble-minded than the Jews in Thessalonica. And they did this not once in a while, they did this daily. Consistently they did that. They took Paul's teaching and they said, is his argument sound? Does it hold up? Is he misquoting the text? Is he quoting it out of context? They wanted to read the verses before and the verses after and to understand what the author was saying in order that they may understand the revelation of God. Not a verse or a phrase jerked out of its context and preached on for 45 minutes that bears no resemblance to the context or the verse that was quoted. That's not what they wanted. They wanted to make sure that Paul was being even-handed with the Scriptures, that he was quoting it accurately, and that he was giving a fair treatment of what that text said. And so they examined the Scriptures daily to make sure that he wasn't leading them astray. Friends, this whole incident in Berea demonstrates to you and I that the truth will stand up to scrutiny. Sometimes we're scared if people start to look into the Christian faith, aren't we? (gasps) What if they find something? Some question that I won't be able to answer. Some hidden skeleton in God's closet. Something about God or something about the Bible that no skeptic or agnostic or atheist has ever found before. Maybe I should be ashamed of my Christian faith. Friends, you shouldn't be. Because for 2,000 years it has stood up to the questions and the objections of the skeptics and the atheists and the critics and the agnostics. Truth does not mind scrutiny. And truth does not crumble when it is scrutinized. And so you and I can honestly preach the message of the gospel that Christ died, that He buried, and that He rose again, and have every confidence that if anybody wants to analyze our Gospel or compare our Gospel with the historical record, that it will come up clean. Because it's truth. And God's not afraid of truth being scrutinized. So scrutinize the message. And don't be afraid of people scrutinizing your message. If it's true, you have nothing to worry about. If you're lying, you have everything to worry about. But it's true. Second, it also shows us the role that Scripture plays in the life of a believer or the life of a church. It is the determiner of all truth. You do not take what I say or what the Sunday school teacher says or what you hear on Christian radio or what you read in a book and measure it up against your dream or your vision or somebody else's teaching, friends. You measure it against Scripture. That's the standard. Don't take what somebody says and measure it against what I say. Take what somebody else says and what I say and measure it by the word of God. And ask yourselves, does that scripture teach what he's saying it teaches in its context? That's the standard. Third, it also shows to you and I that when we see something in scripture that we are challenged by and that we learn, we must bow ourselves to the revelation of God's truth. The Jews in Berea had the same idea of a Messiah that the Jews in Thessalonica had. They expected their king to come in in a glorious fashion and to take over political power and to overthrow the dominion of Rome and to restore the throne of David and all of the blessings of the Messiah. That was their expectations in Thessalonica. It was their expectations in Antioch and in Iconium and everywhere that Paul traveled. But when he got to Berea, they didn't reject him because his teaching didn't measure up with their expectations. Instead, Paul went into the synagogue and he said, your understanding of the messianic role is slightly wrong. The Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. And this Jesus suffered and rose again, therefore this Jesus is the Christ. That was his argument. And they looked at the passages, Isaiah 53, and Psalm 110, and Psalm 22, and they said to themselves, what Paul is saying makes sense. That's what the Scripture teaches. Why didn't we see that before? And they didn't say, we're not going to listen to you because we've never been taught that before. Nobody's ever said that to us before. That goes against our tradition. That goes against our culture. It goes against what our synagogue believes. They simply said, you know what? He's right. That's what the Scripture says. And I will bow myself to the revelation of God's truth because this determines truth, not what I want to believe. So that's what they did. And they bowed to the Scriptures. And they were more noble. Just as in Thessalonica the Word came with full conviction, with power and with the Holy Spirit, it did its work among those who believed. And just like in Thessalonica, it resulted in a riot. Look what the text says in verse 13. The Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea and they came there as well agitating and stirring up the crowds. They weren't content to just run Paul out of Thessalonica. They made a 55 mile trip from Thessalonica to Berea to run him out of Berea. They weren't content to just say, well, let those Bereans do their own thing. We don't care about him, at least he's out of our town. What? The Bereans have received the word? They're going to go after him all the way to Berea to get Paul kicked out of there. They stirred up a riot, formed a riot, and Paul had to leave. And some Christians escorted him as far as to the sea. They took him all the way down to Athens, which is where we'll join Paul next time. Now friends, Luke leaves us with the impression that there was a thriving, solid church planted in Berea as a result of Paul's ministry. There's no record that the Apostle Paul ever went back to Berea for a follow-up visit in the book of Acts. And there's no evidence anywhere in Scripture that the Apostle Paul ever wrote a letter to the Christians in Berea. No follow-up visit and no letter correcting them. Why do you think that is? If you have a high view of the Word of God, do you need a follow-up visit from the Apostle? If you're the type of Christian that examines everything in light of biblical truth, do you need a letter that tells you you've believed false teaching? You don't. Paul could simply commend them to the grace of God and to His Word and trust that God would use His Word to give them an inheritance among those who are sanctified. That's what he said to the elders of Ephesus in Acts chapter 20. I commend you to the Lord and to the Word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. I leave you to God and I leave you to His Word. And the Apostle Paul could do that. No need for a follow-up visit. No need for a letter. Why? You think a false teacher is going to fare very well in Berea? They're going to come in there with this message, and what are they going to do? Same thing they did before they got saved. Does that measure up with what we've been taught? Does that measure up with Paul's word? Does that measure up with the Old Testament text? And if it didn't, they would reject them. I need to say a word about traveling companions. There's some things in verse 14 and verse 15 that Luke thinks are important enough for us to know. Read those two verses with me. Immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there. Now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens and received a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him. As soon as possible, they left. Verse 14 says that Paul left, but Silas and Timothy stayed in Berea, I think, to teach those young believers as long as they could. Paul, when he got to Athens, realized the work in Athens is going to require some help. So those people who escorted Paul down to Athens, Paul gave them a command. When you get back to Berea, you send Silas and Timothy down here to Athens to meet me here. I need help. So that's what they did. Now what Luke doesn't tell us is that Silas and Timothy came back from Berea to Athens. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 says that Paul sent then Timothy from Athens to Thessalonica to check up on the Thessalonian church. Apparently around the same period of time, Paul sent Silas from Athens somewhere into Macedonia because when Paul gets to Corinth in Acts chapter 18 verse 5, if you look at that verse, it says that Silas and Timothy returned from Macedonia to Paul at Corinth. Now, Luke doesn't tell us that they left. He just tells us that they returned. And this brings me to something that we need to say before we go any further in the book of Acts, and and it's this. We're not going to try and keep up with all of the traveling companions of when they leave and when they come with Paul, because from this point forward, it's almost impossible to do that. The first missionary journey was relatively easy, wasn't it? Who did we have? We had Paul, we had Barnabas, and we had John Mark. Well, we know that John Mark left, and we know where and when John Mark left, And then we know it was just Paul and Barnabas after that. And you get to the second missionary journey and it starts out relatively easy. It's just Paul and Silas. Before long they pick up Timothy at Lystra so now there's three people to keep track of. Then they pick up Dr. Luke at Troas and drop him off in Philippi and then go to Berea where he leaves Paul and uh, Silas and Timothy behind and goes on to Athens and then calls them to come down and then Silas leaves and Timothy leaves and friends, from this point forward it's going to get almost impossible to keep track of all that. So we're not going to. I'm not going to try and put together a passenger log of the Apostle Paul's travels because as his ministry expands and his influence grows, he begins to send people on journeys and errands for him. People join him, people leave him. There are people that are mentioned in the epistles that are never mentioned in the book of Acts and we can't possibly try and put together a whole list and a log of people who joined him and left him and when. So here's what we're going to do. Rather than get caught up in that because it would require a lot of speculation and we're not here to exposit speculation, Rather than do that, we're just simply going to pay attention to the people that Luke mentions in the book of Acts. And I'm not going to try and fill in all of the personnel details, except as it pertains to the essential details to follow what's happening in the book of Acts. Okay? Just so you know from this point forward, we're going to be less specific about the people who traveled with Paul because we don't have all the details. We just know it was a lot of people. A lot of people were coming and leaving and joining him and ministering with him, traveling for a ways and then leaving and then... Like Demas. Do you know who Demas is? Mentioned in the epistles, some of Paul's writings, we have no idea when he joined Paul. We just know that at the end of his life, he forsook Paul having loved the present world. We have no idea where Demas came into the picture. We're not going to try and put all that together. So next week, it's Athens. Oh, Athens. Listen, folks. The ancient writer said it was easier to find a god in Athens than a man. A center of polytheism idolatry, intellectual elitism, and hostility to Paul's message. And it's in Athens that Paul has what I think is one of the most interesting times in all of his ministry. And that's the rest of Acts chapter 17, and we'll start on that next week. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for your word. It is the revelation of truth to our hearts and to our minds and to your church. And we ask God that you would challenge us and impress upon us the high view that we should have of Your Word. It is more valuable to us than gold. It enlightens our eyes. It restores our soul. It saves us. It sanctifies us. And it secures us. We thank You for that revelation of Your truth. And we pray, Father, that You would give to us the grace to be Bereans, to receive truth after we have examined it in light of Your Scriptures. Help us to keep that in mind in everything that we hear everything that we read, and everything that we are told. We ask this in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again...